So 2 Samuel, starting chapter 21, starting from verse 1. During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord. The Lord said, It is on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. The king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not part of Israel, but were survivors of the Amorites. The Israelites had sworn to spare them. But Saul, in his zeal for Israel and Judah, had tried to annihilate them. David asked the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? How should I make amends so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? The Gibeonites answered him, We have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or his family, nor do we have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. What do you want me to do for you? David asked. They answered the king, As for the man who destroyed us and plotted against us, so that we have been decimated and have no place anywhere in Israel, let seven of his male descendants be given to us to be killed and exposed before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the Lord's chosen one. So the king said, I will give them to you. The king spared Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath before the Lord between David and Jonathan, son of Saul. But the king took Ammonai and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Ai's daughter, Rizpah, whom she had bore to Saul, together with the five sons of Saul's daughter, Merab, whom she had borne to Adriel, son of Bezaliah the Mahalathite. He handed them over to the Gibeonites, who killed them and exposed them on a hill before the Lord. All seven of them fell together. They were put to death during the first days of the harvest, just as the barley harvest was beginning. Rizpah, daughter of Ea, took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on a rock. From the beginning of the harvest till the rain poured down from the heavens on the bodies, she did not let the birds touch them by day or the wild animals by night. When David was told what Ea's daughter Rizpah, Saul's concubine, had done, he went and took the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the citizens of Jabesh-Gilead. They had taken them secretly from the public square at Bethshan, where the Philistines had hung them after they struck Saul down on Gilboa. David brought the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from there, and the bones of those who had been killed and exposed were gathered up. They buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the tomb of Saul's father Kish, at Zelah in Benjamin, and did everything the king commanded. After that, God answered prayer 
on behalf of the land. Well, thank you very much, Rika. Thank you, Joe, for your uh, introduction. And uh, good morning, everybody. Why don't we just have a moment uh, to pray again and ask for God's help as we turn to his word. Father, we do want to thank you again for your faithfulness to us, your kindness in speaking to us in your word. And we ask now that we will give it our full attention and that you'd be pleased to speak to us, to plant your word deep in our hearts and help us to see the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, listen to these opening lines of that most familiar of all prayers. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For some of us, the Lord's Prayer the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples in Matthew 6 there, is one of those comfortingly familiar, perhaps too familiar parts of the Bible that just kind of trips off the tongue without much thought. For others, it may be unknown, it may be new to you, it may be even slightly mysterious, <clears throat> offering, as it seems to, a kind of a vague hope of a better life of some kind. Perhaps its meaning is hidden behind the spiritual jargon, heaven, hallowed, kingdom. Either way, whether it's very familiar to you or not, I want to suggest that the Lord's Prayer, these words of Jesus, is a good prayer, but also a hard prayer for us to pray. It's good, of course, isn't it? Because it holds out a promise of a better world, the kingdom of God, a world in which God's will now perfectly done in heaven, will be done perfectly on earth. A, word in which, a world in which his name is hallowed, that is, honoured and recognised and worshipped by every creature. And so this is a good prayer to pray. A prayer that all wrongs will be righted, that good will conquer evil, that darkness will be dispelled by light. A prayer for God's damaged, diseased, depraved, desperate creation to be restored to his original intention. It's a good prayer. It's a prayer for sadness to turn to joy, for ugliness to turn to beauty, for death to turn to life. Your kingdom come. But I want to suggest it's also a hard prayer to pray, even a dangerous one, because as soon as we long for those things to be true in our world, for sin to be dealt with, for evil to be put down, for darkness to be removed, we find ourselves part of the problem that we're asking to be put right. This is what it means for the kingdom of God to come. Well, those words of Jesus are a good place to begin this morning as we head into our final few weeks in our long journey through the Old Testament books of 1 and 2 Samuel. Because the hope 
of the kingdom of God is a perfect summary of these two books that we've been studying for now, I think, six years or so on and off. In particular, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, which we treat as one kind of story, one book, I'll sometimes refer to it as two books, sometimes as one book. In particular, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel are asking the question about the king of God's kingdom. Who is worthy to rule God's kingdom? What kind of king will God put on his throne over this disordered world? What sort of ruler has what it takes? And how? How will he do it? Well, those questions will be familiar to us as we've been working through the narrative of 1 and 2 Samuel. But as we reach the beginning of the end this morning, the answer comes in a shocking and painful way. Because what we're going to see is just how difficult it will be for God's kingdom to come. Just how costly it will be for the king to restore and establish his kingdom. And therefore, I want to suggest that this passage and this sermon will also be hard for us to hear, but it will be good for us to hear as well. See, if the prayer that the kingdom of God will come trips off the tongue too easily, if the hope of the kingdom is something we just take for granted, if it's just too familiar, if the grace of God in the gospel has become too cheap, if we have become to feel entitled to the forgiveness that is ours as Christians, then I think God is going to use this passage to shake us, to show us again how costly it is to pray, your kingdom come, and how difficult it is for God to bring his kingdom to earth. But before we get there, it'd be helpful just to set the context for the next few weeks ever so briefly. If you were here last week, you'll have heard Gareth and I have a discussion about chapters 21 24, and we said that they should not be thought of as the kind of the appendices of the book, a kind of a waste dump for all the fragments and bits and pieces that the editor didn't quite know where to put, a bit like the deleted scenes on the old DVDs. I've been wondering when DVDs kind of go, which they are going, where do we get the deleted scenes from? It'd be a shame, won't it? But it's, it's not like that part of the DVD. That is a huge misreading. And we said that these chapters are actually more like the conclusion or the epilogue to the whole story. They've been carefully positioned and carefully written to give us an opportunity to look back and review everything we've seen about the kingdom of David and the kingdom of God and make sure we have fully grasped the message. Now, as someone who's been preaching through this book for a number of years, I have a worry that when we get to the end of this section, we're going to want to go back to the beginning and start all over again because we'll, we'll then properly understand it. But that is what these chapters are here for, to make sure that we have truly understood the message of this book. Now, to grasp this, it's helpful to notice the structure, the arrangement of the section. Most of the way through 1 and 2 Samuel, we've been working chronologically, but now the narrator changes tack and he gives us a thematic kind of section rather than a chronological section. And in particular, he arranges it in this kind of concentric circle sandwich structure, which I'll show you on the screen. 
So we have in this section a famine caused by Saul's sins. Don't feel you have to write this down. We'll come back to it again, uh, I'm sure, next week. But we have a famine caused by Saul's sin. We have David's mighty warriors, part one. David's final song. David's final words. And then we go back to David's mighty warriors. And then we end with a plague caused by David's sin. I'll say more about this structure as we go on in the next few weeks, but just for now, notice two things, two consequences of this particular structure. Firstly, you'll notice that the poems are at the center of it. The poems, as we said last week, are the kind of the theological engine room of the section. The two poems in the middle, in blue there, are actually really the high point of the whole book. And what the narrator is helping us to do is to understand the narrative sections either side of the poem in the light of the poem. And so we're going to be keeping referring to these poems to make sure we understand this section and therefore the message of the book. The second thing you'll notice is that the book ends on a bit of a low note, doesn't it? A bit of an anti-climax. The real climax, the real meat is in the middle But the book itself ends with a plague caused by David's sin. And that is important because what it tells us in this deliberate anticlimax is that when we come to the end of 2 Samuel, the problem at the heart of David's kingdom has not yet been dealt with. There is something that must happen for David's kingdom to become the kingdom of God. Well, to that problem... And all its difficulties we must now turn. And you'll see on the outline two headings. Verses 1 to 5 reveals that the problem in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of David, sorry, is the wrath of God. The problem of wrath in David's kingdom. The passage begins with the announcement that the people of God are starving. Verse 1. During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. At some unspecified time, during David's reign, Israel is afflicted by a serious and ongoing national crisis. For three years in a row, the harvest failed, the food stores dry up, the people go hungry. Now, of course, at one level, this is what we might call a natural disaster. It's something out of David's control, one of those sad but inevitable things, perhaps influenced by the weather or the climate. It's just one of those things that happen in the kind of world in which we live. But careful Bible readers will have a suspicion that there is more to this than mere chance. For a start, You might remember back in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, that famine and drought were curses that God said he would send upon his people when they broke his covenant and when they turned away from him and turned to sin. He said that the promised land, the land of milk and honey, would become like a desert, a place of suffering and hunger and death. So when we see a famine arrive in the kingdom of David, we might have a suspicion that there is something going on here. This is more than just the weather at work. Even more powerfully, 
As we read through 1 and 2 Samuel, we have to keep on coming back to what I've been calling the theme tune, which is Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2. And there we see an actual moment where Hannah prophesies and looks ahead and says that one of the effects of God's true king coming to bring judgment is hunger. Have a look at it on the screen in 1 Samuel 2 verse 5. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry, hungry, hunger no more. When God's true king comes, there's going to be this kind of reversal of fortunes. And so these two clues suggest that this is not a mere natural disaster, but God is behind this famine. Well, this is no doubt why David now goes and inquires of God for the reason for the famine. And still in verse 1, the answer could not be clearer. So David sought the face of the Lord. The Lord said, it is on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. Now, all of that seems to come out of the blue to readers of 1 Samuel, but can you see what God is doing? In one devastating sentence, God has just pulled back the curtain on what is going on. See, think about it from the point of view of every man, woman, and donkey in Israel, that everybody knew there was a famine in an agrarian society where you couldn't store food, couldn't do much trading with your neighbors. Famine came very quickly, and it was very, very painful. Everybody knew there was a famine. But God now reveals why. And it's to do with Saul, David's predecessor. The famine, with all its pain and suffering and loss, is God's doing. It is God's work. And he's brought it on the nation as a result of sin. The famine is part of God's judgment. Well, the circumstances of that particular sin, which are new to readers of 1 and 2 Samuel, don't worry if you think you've missed something, you haven't missed anything, this is new information, are now supplied briefly by the narrator in verse 2 in the context of the conversation David has with the Gibeonite survivors. So look at verse 2. Now the king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them, and then we get the little detail in brackets. Now the Gibeonites were not part of Israel, but were survivors of the Amorites, that is, a branch of the Canaanites. And the Israelites had sworn to spare them, <clears throat> but Saul, in his zeal for Israel and Judah, had tried to annihilate them. Now, this is new information, and we need to just unpack it a little bit. Um, the background to this is recorded in Joshua chapter 9. The Gibeonites were a branch of the Canaanites who were the original inhabitants of the land that God had given to Israel and were conquered by Joshua. And if you go back to Joshua 9, and you can do that in your own time and read the, the, the quite entertaining story, these Gibeonites pulled off a kind of a deception and they tricked Israel into promising to protect them instead of wiping them out with the other Canaanites. And they made Israel make a promise to them to grant them immunity to live in the land without fear. So were these Gibeonites upright, moral, worshippers of God? No. They were deceiving, cunning pagans. But Israel had made a promise to them to protect them. And evidently, we now learn that at some point, again, in an unspecified time during his reign, 
Saul, the king of Israel, had gone back on that promise and tried to wipe them out. And so we're learning that the reason for the famine is God's righteous judgment on that sin. God's wrath is the problem. His just, settled, righteous anger over that sin that Saul had committed. So Saul had been violent and murderous towards the Gibeonites, and he'd broken a covenant, and God is angry. Well, having understood the reason for the famine, David now speaks to the Gibeonites and asks them how he can put things right. Look at verse 3. David asked the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? How shall I make amends so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? It's important to note carefully what David is asking for in verse 3. What he wants is for the curse of the famine to be turned into blessing upon the Lord's inheritance. A phrase that reminds us of the promise God made to Abraham at the beginning of Israel's life. Right now, the land is cursed with a famine and hunger and death. David wants this reversing. He wants the blessing and abundance that God had promised to return. But how does David think that is going to come? Well, David knows this blessing must come at a price. David understands that if God's wrath is over the land, God's wrath must be dealt with somehow. And the word translated in our Bibles there as make amends is the word atone. The Hebrew is the word kippur from the famous Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 in which animal sacrifices are made by the priest on behalf of the people in order to turn away God's wrath and allow them to live. And so David understands that what needs to happen for the famine to be averted is some kind of atonement. He now knows that the problem is not the weather or bad farming, but it's the wrath of God. It is God personally who has brought this famine on the nation, and God personally must be dealt with. His wrath must be turned away. And it's at this point that the passage gets really uncomfortable. Look at verse 4. The Gibeonites answered him, We have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or his family, nor do we have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. So what do you want me to do for you, David asked? They answered the king, as for the man who destroyed us and plotted against us so that we've been decimated and have no place anywhere to, in Israel, let seven of his male descendants be given to us to be killed and exposed before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the Lord's chosen one. So the king said, I will give them to you. The Gibeonites demand in answer to David's question, how shall I atone for the sins of Saul? brings us to the real horror and heartache of this chapter. And even before we look at it in all its detail, it's important to understand why this was necessary. See, why couldn't this be solved by negotiating? Why could David just not issue a verbal apology? We've seen those in recent times, haven't we? We've seen examples in different Western nations, particularly when a, a, an existing government or people will apologize for the sins of former generations. British Empire apologizing for slavery. 
the Australian government <clears throat> apologising for the stolen generation. It's perfectly possible, isn't it, for one person to issue an apology acknowledging the guilt of a former generation. Why are the Gibeonites so clear that financial reparation is not enough? What is the real problem going on in David's kingdom? Well, there are three things, if you're taking notes, three things that we need to grasp to understand this. First, glance back to verse 1 and look again at the charge that God makes against Saul. He refers to Saul's blood-stained house. This is a particular phrase that the Bible uses for sins that bring a curse on the land. Think, for example, of the murder of Abel by Cain back in Genesis chapter 4, in which the blood of the victim actually cries out to God from the ground for justice and brings a fresh curse on the earth. The violence of Saul in shedding the blood of the Gibeonites has polluted the land. And for the land to be cleansed, bloodshed must be brought on the perpetrator. This is what it says in Numbers 35, verse 33. That the only way for atonement and cleansing to be made on the land in which blood has been shed is by the shedding of the blood of the one who shed it. And behind this is something even more fundamental. Back in Genesis 2, 17, God promises that sin, when a human being lifts up their hand against the Lord, must be dealt with by the penalty of death. God is a God of justice and righteousness. Sin brings the judgment of death. And perhaps one reason we find this so shocking is because we have a different view of sin to God. Secondly, it's important to notice that Saul had not only committed the sin of violence and murder, but he had broken a covenant with the Gibeonites. Back in Joshua 9, the terms of the covenant made with the Gibeonites make it clear that if they break the covenant, they bring upon themselves the wrath of the Lord. The leaders of Israel swear an oath in the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And they know full well that if the covenant is broken, then the wrath of God will fall upon Israel. So I think it's important to see that behind the famine and behind the Gibeonites' request that atonement be made is actually the justice, the righteousness of God. The fact that God must restore his own reputation, that his name must be hallowed, that the whole land must be cleansed of sin. We need to be very clear that the problem in David's kingdom at this point is the wrath of God. David has had many problems, hasn't he? He's had Philistines and wars and battles and fights. But as we come to the end of the book, this is the problem the narrator wants us to see and understand the just, settled, righteous anger of God at sin. This is what must be dealt with. But of course, there is something else making us uncomfortable, isn't there? Saul, you'll remember, is long dead. In fact, it's a bit of a surprise, isn't it, to hear right at the end, Saul mentioned again and some of the sort of residue of his life coming out again. He was killed, you may remember, back in 1 Samuel chapter 31. 
And so the thing that will really make us uncomfortable in this passage is that if Saul is long dead, then how can it be just? How can it be right? How can it be fair that his children and his grandchildren suffer and die for the sins that he committed? And this becomes particularly acute when we think of passages like Deuteronomy 24, 16, which says that the children must not be punished for the sins of their fathers. And so the third thing we must understand <clears throat> is to remember that Saul is not any father. He was Israel's king. And the way God has set up his kingdom is that the king represents the people to God. And so when the king sinned, the nation sinned. When the king was punished, the nation was punished. This is how God has set things up in his world as well. When Adam sinned, we were all involved in his sin and his punishment. And so the seven descendants of Saul come to represent the nation as a whole. They stand under the judgment of God on behalf of the nation. They become the covenant breakers who stand in the place of Saul and bear God's wrath for Israel. Well, this might seem a hard pill to swallow. A seven-man execution. Human sacrifice to appease the wrath of God. Children and grandchildren being put to death for the sins of their father. And all with David's approval. And we may find ourselves shocked. And we may find ourselves thinking, is sin really that bad? Is God really so severe? Does the reputation of his name really matter so much? Have we underestimated the problem of sin so significantly? Well, if that is the case, the second part of the passage will help us to face the full horror of what it costs to satisfy the wrath of God and to restore David's kingdom. And so now we turn, secondly, to the price of blessing in David's kingdom. Before we see the horrors of the execution David has agreed to, <clears throat> we're given one piece of good news. We are told about a descendant of Saul, David spares, verse 7. The king spared Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath before the Lord between David and Jonathan, son of Saul. Now this Mephibosheth is David's, sorry, Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson, not to be confused with the Mephibosheth mentioned in verse 8, who was Saul's son. So with that, David takes these seven men, and verse 9, he hands them over to the Gibeonites who killed and exposed them on the hill before the Lord. All seven of them fell together. They were put to death during the first days of the harvest, just as the barley harvest was beginning. With David's express permission, two named sons of Saul, five unnamed grandsons, are forcibly removed from their homes, handed over to the Gibeonites for them to exact justice. And they do it in a particular brutal way. And the narrator seems to want us to understand this. 
The word translated killed and exposed is a single word in the Hebrew, meaning something like hung or impaled or even crucified. And then repeating the Gibeonites' own language from verse 6, the narrator now concurs that this killing was before the Lord, verse 9. It's important to note that God did not command this execution. It was the Gibeonites' idea, and David went along with it. But that phrase, before the Lord, does seem to suggest that this was some kind of judicial sacrifice. And this is teaching us something of what it takes to atone for the sins of Saul. Notice also that seven of Saul's descendants are killed. The number seven could be representative of the whole nation. And in that sense, this is therefore a merciful penalty. The whole nation was under the wrath of God, but only seven were put to death. But the number seven also reminds us of something else. Back in Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2, another sign of God's reversal of fortunes when his true king comes is that the proud are brought down and the humble are lifted up and it's expressed in 1 Samuel 2 verse 5 like this on the screen. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who had many sons pines away. And here, right at the end of the book, in a most tragic and unexpected way, Hannah's prophetic song comes true. And this image of the mother pining for her lost sons is what we see now as we come to the heart of this heart-rending passage. Look at verse 10. Rizpah, daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on a rock. From the beginning of the harvest till the rain poured down from the heavens on the bodies, she did not let the air of the birds of the air touch them by day or the wild animals by night. The Gibeonites carry out their grim work. They kill their victims. They hoist up the bodies. The lack of burial, the ultimate act of humiliation. But that is not the end of their story. Along comes the grieving mother of two of the young men. She has with her a piece of sackcloth. We might have assumed it was that symbol of mourning in the ancient world, but no, it's a very practical mat to sit on or a tent to shelter in because she has chosen to be there and to stay there for a very long time, guarding the flesh of her loved ones, keeping the vultures from the sky, the wolves and bears from the hills from devouring the bodies. She comes and in their helpless, hopeless death, she gives them a measure of protection and dignity. Now why do we hear this in the Bible? Why does the narrator give us this? Well, listen to this from Dutch Bible scholar Jan P. Fockelman. He says, The moment we allow our imagination to dwell on the details of her situation, we recoil. The bodies just hang there, exposed to the elements. The stench and sight of decay can hardly be borne by the outsider, let alone a relative. Rizpah is a mother who day in, day out, week in, week out, is forced to experience this with her own children. The horror, the sadness defies description. In other words, the narrator has given the, 
there's this so that we will feel the sadness of this situation and to reflect with him on the sadness of sin in this world to feel the weight of it to feel the deadness of it the seriousness of god's wrath we are supposed to reflect on our sin on the terrible nature of promise breaking how much god hates pride how much he values his own glory and goodness well rispa keeps her grim vigil until the rains come verse 10 presumably signaling the beginning of the end of the famine and yet even that is not quite enough to put things right there is something about rispa's behavior that prompts david now to further action look at verse 13 david brought the bones of saul and his son jonathan from there and the bones of those who had been killed and exposed were gathered up and they buried the bones of saul and his son jonathan in the tomb of saul's father kish at zela in benjamin and did everything the king commanded all the way through the books of 1 and 2 samuel we've been seeing a constant comparison between saul and david we're always being given a contrast and in one sense sometimes it's hard to see what the difference is both are sinners both fail but here is one very positive way that david shines where saul doesn't saul executed his vulnerable subjects but david refused the opportunity to humiliate his enemy even showing honor to his enemy in death and here is a reminder that david is the righteous king the one who exalts the humble who gives dignity to the humiliated even when the only chance he has to do that is by a proper burial and so now at last the wrath of god is averted and the longed for blessing returns to the land verse 14 we read with some relief that after all of that god answered prayer on behalf of the land and we can assume that the famine ended well in conclusion then i said that this was a hard passage it's ugly it's traumatic it leaves us with some unanswered questions and if you're new to us maybe this is the first time you've been with us in church maybe this is the first taste you've got of one samuel and two samuel i want to encourage you to keep coming back it's not all like this and keep on coming back to see this in the context of the rest of the series because what we're going to see is that these chapters are actually part for all their grimness part of a beautiful picture that god is giving us of his son and so i want to conclude with three reflections that will hope us to see that beauty and glory and goodness three things to think about and to discuss through the week ahead firstly we see in this passage the kindness of clarity so look again at verse 1 david knows there is something wrong in the kingdom a three-year famine is one of those things that makes you ask questions why it's a human tragedy of immense proportions and sometimes 
Things happen in our world, don't they, that make us ask why. You see things on the TV, a a tsunami, an earthquake, a famine, a pandemic. And sometimes things happen in our own lives, individually and as families, that, that make us sit up and ask, why? What is wrong with this world? Well, where do you turn for answers? The atheist, of course, has a very ready and easy answer. These things, of course, prove, don't they, that God doesn't exist. If these things happen in a world, then there cannot be a good and loving God over the world. And so the atheist's answer to the question why is a convenient one. It's intellectually straightforward. It is what Richard Dawkins calls the blind, pitiless indifference of DNA that neither knows nor cares. Few people really believe that, I think. Much more common is the the sort of agnostic or even the superstitious person who doesn't go for the atheist sort of easy clarity, but doesn't know why these things happen. Touch wood. Cross your fingers. Don't walk under ladders. Accept your fate. Hope for a better karma. Or perhaps if you're religiously inclined, then make sure you are paying your due fees to whatever God you might have offended. But I want to suggest that this passage gives us a much better answer. Better than the the blind, pitiless indifference of atheism or the miserable uncertainty of agnosticism. It gives us a better answer, even though it's an uncomfortable one. The answer it gives us is that the reason these things exist in our world is because of the righteous wrath of God. That is, contrary to the atheist who says, suffering in our world proves that God does not exist, the Bible tells us that suffering in our world proves that God does exist, that he is there, that he does care. And far from being incompatible with his goodness, such suffering is an expression of his goodness. It's just that his goodness doesn't fit into our neat, human-centered ideas of goodness. But it's part of his righteous concern for the glory of his name, for justice to be done, for wrongs to be righted. So when we pray, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, we're asking God to hold sin to account for the shedding of blood, for the breaking of covenants. And so this passage is a sign of God's kindness in telling us what is wrong with the world. So imagine you went to the doctor and the doctor is looking at your results and your x-rays and feeling your blood pressure and all the other things that they do and he or she hides the truth, maybe out of politeness or fear. The doctor can see that you've got some serious problem, but they just say, you've just got a cold, just go and take some vitamin C and you'll be fine. How unkind is that doctor to know the reality but hide it from you? 
And how kind is God to reveal the truth to us? Not to leave David in the dark, but to tell him. To say, you know, the nation is suffering because of sin, because of judgment, because of God's concern for his holy name. Now, just to be clear, very important little sort of footnote here, that the reason specific suffering happens is not always made clear to us. It's emphatically not the case, as the book of Job makes clear and as Jesus makes clear in numerous times in the Gospels, that a particular experience of suffering in our lives or in the world is the direct result of a particular sin in our lives. It is a, a false move to say that nation is being judged with famine because they have done something wrong. You know, America's being judged because of their sins and the British Empire's being... It's a false move. And it's equally a false move to look at your own suffering and say this is because of a particular sin. I want to be very clear about that. But the Bible is emphatically clear that all the suffering that we experience in this world and all the death that has come into the world has ultimately come because of God's judgment over sin. has to be that way, doesn't it? Otherwise, God is not in control. From Genesis 2, and the wages of sin is death, to Romans 1, and the wrath of God being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of men, this world is the way it is because we have rejected God's kingship. And he is doing something about it. He's warning us ahead of time. And so when you see suffering in the world, it's like the speed bumps leading up to the roundabout, telling us judgment is coming and it's getting closer. And it is therefore time to get right with God. Which brings us to our second reflection from this passage, the brutality of atonement. I've already mentioned that the narrator wants us to dwell a little bit on the, the sadness of this passage, to live with it for a while. As one commentator put it, to marinate in it, not to run away from it too quickly. Because he wants us to do something we don't often do, which is really understand how horrible sin is and what it costs to atone for it. See, one of the, the problems with being sinners is that we're never going to see sin as quite as bad as God does. One of the lies of the devil is, is to sugarcoat sin and to see it as something better than it is. I mean, think about the sins you particularly enjoy doing. You might see them as attractive, sexy, exciting, beautiful. But this passage reminds us that sin is as ugly as death. And death is what is required for sin to be atoned for. Why do we need to understand this? So that we will leave depressed and discouraged and despairing so that we will wallow in our sin? No. We're told this to make us thankful for Jesus Christ. Because the horror and suffering of the atonement we see here is just a glimpse, an accurate glimpse, but a glimpse 
of what it would cost God to put things right in the end. For God's kingdom to come, for God's will to be done, for his name to be hallowed at last, it'll not take seven descendants of Saul, but the perfect, sinless son of God, the son of David, who himself is hung up and exposed as he himself took and absorbed all the wrath on our behalf. So we don't need to. And I think this passage is here to stop us from getting over-familiar with what it took God to save sinners. It challenges our sense of entitlement to forgiveness. It warns us not to speak with familiarity about the cross, not to beautify it in our art or sentimentalize it in our songs or turn it into an abstraction in our theology, but to remember that atonement is horrible because sin is horrible. It is brutal, ugly, and violent. Listen to Del Ralph Davis in his commentary on 2 Samuel. He says, Surely the Israelite worshipper realized this, when he towed a young bull to the tabernacle and had to slit its throat, skin it, cut it to pieces, it was all mess and gore. From slicing the bull's throat in Leviticus all the way to the cross, God has always said atonement is nasty and repulsive. Christians must beware of being too refined, longing for a kinder, gentler faith. If we've grown too used to Golgotha, Perhaps Gibeah can shock us back to the truth. The stench of death hangs heavy wherever the wrath of God has been quenched. And so we're seeing here a glimpse, aren't we, of what it took for Paul to say in Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Well, how can we benefit from this atonement? How can we avoid the wrath of God? Well, that brings us thirdly to the safety of covenant faithfulness. You may have noticed that we skimmed over verse 7, where David spares Mephibosheth because of the oath he had sworn. And this is the last time that Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, David's friend, appears in the story. And we're being reminded here that back in chapter 20 of 1 Samuel, David made a solemn promise to Jonathan that he would always be kind to his descendants, something he's already put into practice in 2 Samuel 9. And so here again is a contrast between David and Saul. While Saul violated the covenant with the Gibeonites, David kept his covenant with Jonathan to the end. And so there is, after all, a king in Israel who keeps his promises. And on that, Mephibosheth's fate hangs. And what David did for Mephibosheth Jesus has promised to do for all who trust in him. David's faithfulness to his covenant, if you think about it, drew an impregnable circle of protection around Jonathan's son, even though he was a member of Saul's family. And Jesus has drawn such a circle around all who trust in him, a circle of absolute safety, where the wrath of God has already fallen, because it's fallen on him. And you know what this means? It means if you are someone who trusts in Jesus, you are safe. Safe to face the judgment of God. 
But if you are someone who has not yet trusted in Jesus, the sufferings of this world are a warning that the judgment of God is coming. And you must throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus. You must get yourself safe in his hands. For he is the true king of Israel, who loses none of those entrusted to him. The good shepherd who promises that not a single sheep will be snatched from his hand. He is the son of David who has made atonement in his own body to bring us safely to the kingdom of God. He is the one who takes us by the hand to that place where we read in Revelation 21 where he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more mourning or death or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And Jesus makes that promise and he will keep that promise. So let's pray that we'll be people who trust that promise and glory in it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the kindness of your clarity. Thank you that you've not left us in the ignorance and darkness that we deserved. But you have made things clear, showing us the horrible nature of sin, the reality of your wrath against it. And as we see those things, we see the glory and beauty and grace that you have given us in dealing with sin and your wrath in the cross of Christ. And so we ask that you might help us now to turn to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, to cling on to him through the suffering of this world, and to trust in his utter faithfulness to his promise to bring us whole, cleansed, restored, forgiven in his eternal kingdom when it comes. In his name we pray. Amen.